1: Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com.
2: Sometimes science goes too far. Dark matters, twisted but true. Wednesdays at ten on
0: Science. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. With me at long last is Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and uh, this is special, like eight ways from Sunday. This, yeah,
2: this episode is, isn't it? I've changed my name over the weekend. That's uh-huh. new. Yeah, I changed the Jan Michael Vincent. Finally. I know, right? Uh,
0: you've been talking about that forever, Chuck. I'm glad you finally did it. And you showed me your driver's license, and it's official. Pretty neat. And what's cool is um, you did your hair for the photo. And it looks kind of like the Airwolf Airwolf era Jam Michael Vincent. Is there any other era? The mechanic. That's true.
2: Yeah. That, those are lady. his two eras. Hooper. Was he in that? Yeah. He was the young buck uh, stuntman to Burt Reynolds, aged veteran. Oh, really? He... Played that role a couple of times, then I guess. <laughs> I guess so, huh?
0: Okay, well that's enough for the Jam Michael Vincent shout-outs. Is he around still?
2: Uh, I mean, I haven't seen him in a decade, and he was in pretty bad shape a decade ago. Was he really? Yeah. From the from what? I think drugs. I might be wrong though. Or maybe he was. <laughs> I hope you're not wrong. Maybe he was injured or something. Because you just told everybody
0: <laughs> Jam Michael Vincent likes drugs. He's self experimented. Great one. Thank you very much for that. Um, this is a special episode because we are good, good friends with the Science Channel. And they have a very, very cool show that, uh, an ad played for at the beginning of this episode. That's right. Uh, Dark Matters. Mm-hmm. It comes on, it premiered last Wednesday. It comes on tomorrow. Wednesdays at 10 p.m. Have you, have you looked at the episodes? Have you seen any of the video? It's pretty awesome. It, it is. Um, and I was going through the episode guide of the stuff they have coming up. It's like, um, Really, like a dark version of Unsolved Mysteries. You remember Ooh, that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, they, a couple of the episodes have stuff that we've covered, like Einstein's brain, uh-huh. CIA, LSD. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then they have a bunch of stuff we Are haven't covered. Are they ripping covered. us off? I, I didn't get
2: that impression, <laughs> but it's it's possible. They can do anything they want. But imitation is the greatest form of flattery. That's right. right. And we, that's actually, we get asked to do stuff sometimes, and you'll know if we really want to do it, because we do it. And we did this one, like, this
0: is literally being recorded today.
2: Yeah. Like, that's crazy. That is definitely different. Yeah, Jerry's
0: turning this one around, like, like,
2: hours later. Yeah, we, or earlier, we recorded this. It is as fresh as it gets. It still has the peach fuzz on it. Depeche Mode, by the way. Depeche Mode is in no way related to (laughs) Erasure. (laughs) The founding, he was a founding member of Depeche Mode and later went on to found Erasure. Really? Vincent Clark, yeah. Really? Yes. Wow. Nice music I knew there was trip. some tie. I had no idea. We're talking about this because we were having, rarely do we let you in on our pre-record conversation, mm-hmm. but Josh went and saw Erasure this weekend, and I knew it there was- It was awesome. And it was great. And there was some tie to another band, and I couldn't remember it, and it was Depeche Mode.
0: I, well, it was either Depeche Mode or the Pet Boys. Probably. Pets but but boys. I, I had, Geez, did I just say that? You heard that, he said the Pet Boys, which is- <laughs> Auto parts (laughs) store. They're really good on the keyboards, and they have these gigantor heads and tiny bodies. All right, so Chuck, you ready? Ready. We're talking about scientists who self-experiment. And we've talked about um, crazy experiments before. So this um, episode actually forms a trifecta with two other previously released episodes that if you haven't heard, you should go listen to. What's the third? Um, There is uh, the human experimentation. Yeah, Sure episode and then five crazy government experiments oh yeah yeah all those are pretty pretty well mixed together so if you listen to that the if you listen to those two in self-experimentation you're going to have a very robust understanding of just how nuts some scientists are you know what they call that around here what a bucket
2: yeah they do (laughs) a bucket of content heck that's almost a channel (laughs) that's right uh this is good man You, you threw this together like lickety split last week and found some really cool things i think yeah, there's, there's, um, you could do way more than
0: 10. Oh yeah, I'm sure. Um, like the guy who cracked his own knuckles for 30 years. Oh yeah. Just in his left hand, I believe. To and he, see he if found if nothing, it, right? It does not cause arthritis. That's right. Um, we've talked before about Albert Hoffman, the Swiss chemist who, um,
2: took the world's first acid trip That's on right. purpose. Yeah. Um, on a bike. Boy, can you imagine, like, never having known anything about it? Like, I think generally when people do that kind of thing these days, you've, you've yeah. heard of it and you know what's coming. Sure. But for it to be this brand new thing, he was probably like, I bet that was a long bike ride. Yeah. Like, kids, kids grew up on the great space coaster, so they know it's yeah. coming, you know?
0: Um, but yeah, he said that, um, he, he, he laid down at home and, um, these these bizarre but not altogether unpleasant visions started coming to him, and yeah, yeah he was whacked out for oh, many hours. Um, but we've talked about him before. Um, a guy who we haven't talked about, who I find just fascinating, uh, is named Santorio Santorio. It's the the researchers so nice they named him twice.
2: Santorio Santorio.
0: Yes, yes. Take it, Chuck.
2: Uh, well, he was a self-experimenter, and one of the the earlier self-experimenter's. Um, we're talking sixteenth century style. And uh, what he did is he wanted to find out about, and I guess they didn't call it metabolism at the time, did they?
0: No, he, he it kind later of ended up off being the study. Okay,
2: yeah, back then they were, they had no idea. But they basically, that's what he was doing was kind of learning about the human metabolism, and he did so by uh, being very meticulous about recording what he e- eat,ed mm-hmm. <laughs> what he ate the and pebbles. what he drank, and uh, weighing his stools and his urine. Mm-hmm. And I guess he formed some equation, what comes in, what goes out. Well, he found that it doesn't
0: equal. Well, sure. And you, you can't take into account the weight you put on. There's still some um, difference. And he wanted to figure out where that went, and he came up with the idea of insensible perspiration. Which I thought was going to be all about sweat, so
2: I was a little disappointed.
0: Well, it is. Yeah, but really... I mean it's just like constant little sweat I guess so. <laughs> you lose weight like that. But the the cool thing about Santorio Squared is that um he lived for 30 years, Chuck. Essentially he on did this, this for 30 machines? years? Yeah, every oh, wow. every day, every every single day for 30 years and he basically lived on this machine. It was like huge beam scale. Uh-huh. And he constructed like a little chair and like a, a work table and all that and he weighed all the food and drink that came on and he Weighed all the poop and urine that went off. But he lived on this thing.
2: Well, and what's sad is that he did all this, and it really wasn't super useful. No, but... It again, opened the doors, though, for things it, like this. It definitely did.
0: Yeah. And um, one of the other things it did was um, he had the idea of insensible perspiration before he did this. So he was one of the first people to say, you know what? I'm not just going to say something. I'm going to subject this to scientific rigor. I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. I'm going to... But Live on poop. A, a scale and <laughs> weigh my poop. poop. <laughs> yeah. He's like a, a stockbroker in the
2: 80s looking for brand, you know? <laughs> so that's number one. Uh, number two, we come to 1803. Is a little bit of a jump there to Frederick Wilhelm Adam Serturner. Mm-hmm. And um, what he ended up doing was actually pretty useful <laughs> for everyone, even today. Yes. Because he, did he discover yes. morphine? He isolated it. Isolated it from opium. Yeah. And through 52 steps, got a few friends together. Well, first he tested it on animals until they started dying. <laughs> yeah. Sleeping and dying.
0: <laughs> right. And then he's like, well, maybe I should try this on people and see what happens. Oh, yeah. Because he said um, that uh, animals do not give exact results.
2: I guess that's true. Right. So he and his 17-year-old friends give exact results. Although dying is a pretty exact result. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So he OD'd a bunch of animals. Then he got three, uh, you pointed out, 17-year-olds plus himself. I think he was like 20 at the time. He was? So that's like right in the wheelhouse still today, I think. Yeah, He's middle-aged back then, though. Yeah. Uh, and so he dosed uh, himself and his friends on a low dose at first, about a half a grain of morphine, which is 30 MGs. Oh, yeah, it's a comparatively low dose to what he took. Right. And that produced a little flushing. He was like, hey, this is kind of neat, but I'm I'm <laughs> looking for more than flushing, so let me take a little more. Yeah. After about 15 minutes, took a similar dose. Started feeling a little queasy and faint and sleepy, of course. Yeah. And to the point where I guess he thought it might be getting a little dangerous. So he threw up, made all his friends throw up to get it out of their system. Well, yeah, he started to get a little worried that they were all going to die because they'd taken
0: 90 milligrams of morphine in less than an hour, which today we realize is 10 times the recommended dose. So, yeah, he, he, um, he, gave everybody like eight ounces of vinegar to drink and made them throw up and save their lives.
2: Yeah, I imagine they probably would have OD'd, huh?
0: Yeah. And then he did another experiment later because he had a toothache and he found that if he just took opium for it, the toothache wasn't cured. But if he took some morphine, it was cured.
2: Oh, I thought he discovered that by accident. Like he was like, wait a minute, my toothache's gone. No, he kept going. This is not the
0: only experiment. Like he had like many, many brushes with death. As far as self-experimenting scientists go, he was probably one of the um, one of the toughest ones, or at least, or was the, the most one, able to take a lot of drugs. Right. The one most addicted to morphine. That's right. Yeah, but uh, that was a pretty big contribution to humanity. Morphine. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's still like the
2: go-to um, painkiller today. I imagine. Yeah. Or not. I imagine. I I know this to <laughs> be true. <laughs> uh, up next, Josh, we have Henry Head, Sir Henry Head. And uh, he got together with his buddy, W.H.R. Rivers, <laughs> and um, they, uh, th- this one's a little crazy to me. They knew at the time that nerve damage can repair itself, but what they didn't have was uh, documentation. Right, because people, people couldn't describe it good enough. Right, apparently. they'd be like, yeah, I guess that kind of hurts. Yeah, and like, yeah, so what they needed at the time, there was no documentation, so they were like, well, let me cut out a sliver of my nerve. On my arm, and sew it back together. And let's, since I can talk about this stuff mm-hmm. intelligently, just I'll do it myself. Yeah, and not just any nerve. This is
0: a radial. The, his the radial nerve in his left arm. Right. He was right-handed, which is why he did this to his left arm because le- he's at no least dummy. He did that.
2: <laughs> no, he's no dummy. Right.
0: Um, and he had it surgically removed. And the radial nerve, dude, goes to the spinal column oh, and really? then all the way down branches all the way down to the hand. So it's like a major nerve, and yeah. he had a section cut out and then tied back together with silk and then said, okay, I'm going to spend the next five years paying attention to how the um, sensation uh, somatosensation comes back. That's right. And not only that, Chuck, so dude, I got a root canal the other day, as you know. Yeah, you said it wasn't too bad, huh? No, it wasn't, but I, I was, I was thinking about Henry Head because- while it was going on, I kind of went off to my happy place. I just like left mm-hmm. my body as much as possible. Yeah. In case any pain did come along, it would be kind of muted. What Henry Head did. Did that work? Was it does? Okay. Yeah. You, you know, like you're not looking for the pain. You're trying to avoid it mentally.
2: Yeah. And it definitely makes it worse if you're thinking paying about attention. The pain. Yes.
0: Yeah. He, but what Henry Head did was create this, um, kind of trance-like state called uh, negative attitude of attention. Where he focused his attention inward on pain, looking for it, so he could, you know, I, I guess experience it more fully right. and pay attention to the type of pain it was. This guy went on this journey of pain, excruciating pain at times. Yeah,
2: he she, told his wife that.
0: Yeah, what was his quote to his wife? He said, "I shall know a great deal about pain by the <laughs> yeah. time this experiment is over." Yeah, and he was, was like, right.
2: Yeah, whatever. Yeah. But he was a bad dude. She was like, what's this bringing in? Are they paying you for this? <laughs> Eternal fame. But he, uh, you know, that documentation was important because they'd never been able to, to to describe fully. They probably didn't follow patients up like they do now, you right. know, like five years later.
0: Right. Well, and this was over the course of five years. So, like, they they basically documented how sensation returns after major nerve damage, and he also contributed a lot to experimental psychology with the negative attitude of attention. Um, basically, there's a the, this whole thing of reverie where you're just basically zoned out, like Ralphie in um, a Christmas Story. Like that that was never documented before. And basically, what Henry Head did was say, "Oh, here's a way to explore that."
2: I don't get the Ralphie.
0: Remember Link. where they're like Ralphie and he like comes to? Oh okay. Remember his uh his little daydream about getting the A yeah, plus
2: plus 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 that's reverie. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's good family comedy. That's what yeah. that is. <laughs> yes it is. Uh number four on our list, Josh, I like to call the the dude who loved drugs Alexander Shulgin. <laughs> uh, we talked about him before, and uh, he was a chemist for Dow in the 60s.
0: We talked about it in the Ken uh, Psychedelics Treat Mental Illness. That's the one he showed up in.
2: Right. Uh, he was basically um, toying with, with mescaline and and compounds that later became ecstasy, MDMA. MDMA. Mm-hmm. Yep. I have a hard time saying that. And he and his wife uh, took a lot of these psychoactive drugs, had parties, the and mar- the martini, as the usual method of the 60s. Yep. Put a little drugs in there, and uh, you know that's basically his story. He, he liked the drugs. And I guess he documented all this stuff, right? Yeah. He I, wasn't just partying, was he? Uh,
0: I don't know if partying's the right word, but I don't know that he was always documenting. I don't know if it was always scientifically rigorous. How many did he take here? So there's like an estimated 300 <laughs> psychoactive compounds in the world, and he estimated that he sampled between 200 and 250 of them. Wow. So he, he liked the psychedelics a lot. He, put, he was uh, big time into the dead. Timothy Leary, to shame. Didn't he? They were probably buddies.
2: Was he American? Yeah. Okay.
0: So let's go back a little bit from the drug-addled 60s. To the drug-addled 19th century? Yeah, 1819, right? Mm-hmm. There was a Czechoslovakian monk who, um, at age 32, became a doctor because um, he didn't think that the whole recommended dosage thing that was being doled out at the time was, he called it uh, nothing but mysticism. He thought it was way too low and basically um, oh, what is it? homeopathy. Right. I think he had a problem with homeopathy. His name was Jan Perkinyi, And he uh, he basically said, okay, I'm going to become a doctor so I can learn more about this. And then I'm going to take as many drugs as I can get my hands on and um, overdose and then pay attention to what happens to me. That's right. Because I want to figure out what the recommended dosage should be.
2: Yeah, the coolest part about this guy's story, I think, is that after he started doing this, like taking things like Mm Foxglove to blur his vision and then writing about that, Nightshade, uh, the word got out and people, I got the sense that other doctors were like, hey, there's this dude that... He'll let you do anything to it. Right. He'll take anything. <laughs> so they started doing that.
0: Yeah. One of his, uh, teachers, um, at med school said, Hey, I've got these three different extracts of ipecac and I need to find out which one's best.
2: So what do you think? Which one may- is there anything that that does besides make you vomit? Nope. Okay. That's its sole purpose. Yep. As far as I know, that's it. Have you ever I've had I've never it? heard of it used for anything else. No, I haven't either. No, I don't ever want to have it,
0: but, um, I want to try it. This, so yam perkinyi, um, conducted a three-week trial of these three extracts of ipecac and by the end of the trial he would conditioned like a vomiting response whenever he saw like a brown powder that looked like ipecac he just, yeah Bleh. yeah was his it.
2: wife's like you want some cinnamon toast well
0: <laughs> you know it's interesting his wife died and he became um in charge of raising his three boys and he said okay i'm not self-experimenting anymore i gotta I have to stick around to take care of these, these jokers. That's good to know. Yeah, it was pretty cool. He said he was leaving it to the younger generation. So he started. But he'd been doing it for 20 years already. Right. And, um, not just Ipecac and, uh, Foxglove, but also, um, Nightshade. We now use atropine, which is the active ingredient in Nightshade, to dilate pupils thanks to him, because he overdosed on Nightshade to find out what would happen. And he would also make himself very dizzy to study vertigo Mm
2: -hmm. on carousels. Yeah. There's a type of vertigo named after him. Oh, really? Yeah. Because he, uh, he studied it and figured it out. So he would just like get on the carousel until, and then stand up and. Yeah.
0: But rather than, this is a common thread in, in self-experimentation, like with my root canal, or if you're dizzy on a carousel, you go inward, you, you, you shy away from it. You don't, want to pay attention to any details you just want everything to end right (laughs) what self-experimenting researchers do is throw themselves into the experience and pay attention Mm -hmm. and gain all that knowledge from it that you know any one of us could do if if we were good at describing things scientifically yeah true but we don't because we want to avoid pain and discomfort and nausea and well these
2: guys did it for us
0: they did thankfully yeah well that's why we're doing this one too it's like hats off to them if you haven't gotten that impression yet
3: is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: What if I just did that and I had like a reverse mohawk or something? (laughs) And I like you couldn't say anything about it. All right, George Stratton is next, and he uh, did something a little crazy. You know, he he wore reversing lenses. Yeah. In the 1890s, so he learned that our visual information uh, comes in in an inverted manner. We all know this,
0: right? Well, he he knew that. Like, yeah. But there were theories that said this. It, that's how it has to be, and he wanted to find out if that was true like does visual information have to be inverted for us to see upright cuz you know it
2: the that uh, it flips over in the brain exactly right so can you imagine what he did to his brain by doing this
0: yeah it's pretty crazy
2: he wore these uh, reversing lenses which basically presented visual information right side up um and wore them for 8 days right. straight
0: so it pro- provided it right side up to the brain but if we wore that everything would look upside down yeah and he did. He like you said, eight days straight. Unbelievable. He said the thing that got him the most was like was he would put his hand out, moving. <laughs> right. Well, he had to just sit there for like f- the first four days. He couldn't move at all. Oh, really? Yeah. But um, he would put his he would stretch his hand out, and it would come in from the top rather than the bottom. Wow. And he said everything was just like a dream.
2: Um, I'd like yeah. to try that out for like a, a second. You know, I just like to put some on and be like, oh. Right. That's weird. Let me take them right back off. Exactly. Not leave them on for eight days.
0: No. Apparently, by the fifth day, everything started to um, show up as upright again. Oh, really? Yeah. And then if you really concentrated on it, it would go back to being upside down. But So did
2: he rewire his brain? Yeah.
0: Wow. Yeah. He proved that the infor- visual information doesn't have to be inverted to, s- to be seen upright, um, and that the brain is really capable of adapting in a fairly short time yeah. to basically the most radical changes in, in the, that's the sensations it's presented.
2: So I guess that sort of helped. I mean, it's not like that led to any huge breakthrough, though, did it? I think
0: it, it probably gave, uh, yeah, I, I would think that it probably formed the basis of, like, neuroplasticity. Yeah? Surely. All right. Yeah. Plus, also, I mean, anybody who does that, that's mind-bending, you know? Yeah. he he gets a He gets a pat on the back for
2: that, no matter what. Well, and he also found, too, that after taking them off, that it took a little while to get back to normal, which probably <laughs> says something, too, about your brain unlearned. Yeah. I think his brain was ticked t- t- off. Yeah, he it's said like, that dude. he had, like, glasses at first,
0: and he said it was just too much. He couldn't do it. So he blindfolded one eye for eight days and had, like, basically a, a monocle, like a little yeah, just single lens. Eye. And that's the one he wore for eight days. He said it was just too much to have two lenses. So you want to do Carl Landsteiner?
2: Uh, yeah. He he actually did do a lot of good work. He was a uh, Viennese and he was a physician, and he basically came up with the blood typing system, the ABO blood typing system, because he noticed that red blood cells in some people uh, clump in the presence of the fluid component, which is serum, but not everybody. So he thought right. it's almost as if their blood is a different type from one another. Well, at the time,
0: like, they knew that that would happen because you give people blood transfusions and then they die. And um, they, you'd look was at it their because blood the and blood and it was type? clumped. Yeah. But at the time, everybody thought it was because those people had some unknown disease. And Lonsteiner was like, I think that people just have different types of blood. So he used his own blood and some of his colleagues. We should do one on blood type. I think we should.
2: Is that true? Like, your body cannot, literally cannot accept... A,
0: another blood type it depends i think o is the universal type yeah so you can um except but if you
2: have like a can you can't have b at all no
0: because the red blood cells clump and your blood doesn't flow and you die so it's like putting diesel in a uh, very much so in a regular engine very much so yeah wow um so what like you said what lon Steiner did was a huge contribution because he showed uh, you know there's different antigens in different types of blood and that Creates this different blood type A, B, O, or AB. Yeah. Um, And when you, when you, if you, if you test people first and say, oh, they're A type, right? And we've got some A type blood over here. A blood transfusion will work, and so will organ donation and all this this other stuff.
2: Yeah, it was enormous. I bet doctors were like. Oh well, that's good to know, right? <laughs> yeah,
0: all these you people need to Stop putting die now. diesel in these people. <laughs> um, so yeah, he won the Nobel Prize in 1930 for that. And oh, did he? Rightly so. Yeah, he should win it every year. But what's crazy is, uh, you know, he he just he experimented on himself. It's kind of cool. Um, but what's nuts is that. He also used his colleagues' blood, and it just so happened that out of, like, five people, they all had different blood types. Like, all oh, the really? blood types were present. It could have gone the exact opposite way. Right. And just everybody had A type. And, and then he said, no, nope, they're the same. Yeah, exactly. So I, I thought that was pretty cool. It was almost a uh, providence.
2: Well, and he he led uh, that led to Dr. Jack Goldstein um, in the 1980s to do, he was a biochemist that did more Experimenting, and this one confused—not confused me, but he found out that an enzyme in coffee, mm-hmm. when injected into B blood, removes antigen and basically makes it the universal blood type. Right.
0: How did he figure that out? I How don't know. The coffee thing coming. I out? don't
2: know, but he he figured it out. But He's like, o- I just injected coffee one day to see what that would do. Right. In my blood.
0: Right. So he he had O type blood. So the, the this enzyme changes B type blood to O type blood um and he had o type blood so to prove that this worked he got a blood transfusion of this treated b blood that was ostensibly now o blood right so he got a blood transfusion a small one but he, he did it himself um to see if you know his arm would fall off or something like that or if his blood would clump and it worked right and it's still being worked out but apparently um you know that opens up like the the donation pool Sure. If you can just take all this B-type blood and right. you need O, which is the universal type, just inject it with this, en- this enzyme and...
2: I wonder how much blood you have to have transfused before it, like, how much diesel can you put in there?
0: I don't know. Like, I, if you
2: if they just did, like, a vial, would that, like, what would that do to your body?
0: I don't know, because Goldstein did, like, 11 billion, 11 and a half billion red blood cells. Right. And I, I, I don't know if that's just a few drops or if that's, like, half a pine or a pine or yeah. what i curious. Yeah. All right. we'll, we'll have to find that
2: out in the blood typing episode, okay? Well, I have, I've been wanting to do the blood one for a while, but it's just like... Let's do it right now. It's tough. I'm going to need a little while on that one.
0: Okay. Okay. Do we have a blood typing article?
2: Uh, well, we have an article on blood that's like really dense.
0: Oh, yes. We started to do that one, and we're like, yeah, we're not doing this right yeah, now. Yeah, it was I much remember more complex that. than I thought. I think it was written by an MD, wasn't it? It read like it. Yeah.
2: So look for the revised version <laughs> coming in the future. All right. I like number nine. Ebbinghaus? Er- Erman. Is it Herman or Erman Ebbinghaus? I don't think he's Portuguese. He was German. Would Erman be Portuguese? <laughs> uh, yeah. Erman? I don't know. He's Herman then. Let's just call him Herman. Okay. He was German. And uh, he was the first guy to really study memory in a really, maybe at all, but in a really scientific way, mm-hmm. which was which was. Unusual at the time to apply scientific research principles to psychological matters.
0: Right, it was like basically taking the way the hard sciences doing it and applying it to the soft science of psychology. That's right. But he formed the methodology that's still in use today and proved that it it can work. Like, yes, you can study, you
2: know, cognitive right. faculties like memory in a science way, in yeah. a science way, sciencey way. Mm-hmm. Um, so what he did was uh, pretty cool. He created. Uh, first thing he did was, was he created these non-syllable, nonsense syllables, 2,300 of them, mm-hmm. with two consonants with a vowel in the middle, like nog is one example you used. Yeah. And th- he had to make them nonsense because there had to be, like, no association with, like, previous words that he had learned. They had to be brand new things in his brain.
0: Right. Because, I mean, if you if, if you have a previous association with a syllable, right, like ska Okay. And you have a great memory of ice skating as a child, and Skay brings
2: that to mind. Of course you're going to remember Skay. I'm surprised he came up with 2,300 of them. I know. That'd be tough for me. Uh, so what he did was he basically, over the course of a year, uh, learned these words, and then to the point where he could recall them perfectly, and then recorded how long it took for him basically to forget them. And then relearn them again. Right. And that taught us all sorts of cool things about memory. Yeah,
0: he, he figured out that. Um, and a lot of this stuff you know, is so commonplace, we, we know it, we take it very much for granted. But this guy is the one who figured out yeah. that um, meaningless stuff is harder to uh, learn than meaningful stuff. Yeah. Um, he gave us the idea of the learning curve. The more stuff you have to learn, the longer it's going to take to learn it. Yeah, I
2: think he was the first person to actually name it, too, the learning curve. I think so. It's possible. I believe so.
0: Okay. Um, and uh, forgetting happens most rapidly right after learning and then kind of evens off and slows down. Yeah. Um, and he taught us that cramming doesn't work, that learning uh, is best when it's done over a, a, a longer time than, you know, a single true learning session. Yeah. Because, boy, I used to cram pretty well. Did you?
3: Yeah. I
2: stunk at it. <laughs> I was good at it. I, I was not. I, just, I, I would just be too stressed out. Well, and I shortchanged myself, though, because I would do well on the test and then forget it, which was, I mean, I wasn't doing myself any favors as far as gaining yeah. knowledge, you know. I, I took Italian um, in college, and it was the only language that's ever
0: clicked for me. Like, I got Italian on a... Fundamental level. Oh, really? Yeah, and just ace the class until the final. Mm-hmm. And I studied for the final. I don't think I crammed. I just, you know, I didn't take it for granted that I was going to ace the final. But I, I, for some reason, I got there and forgot everything. Panic. And when I sat down, and well, then I panicked. Yeah, but it wasn't panic <laughs> until I realized that I'd forgotten everything. And I still to this day don't understand what happened. And I don't remember. It's not like it came back after the test. It just went away. Right before the final. You know what happened?
2: What? A centaurio centaurio <laughs> that's what happened.
0: I, st- I I started weighing my feces and
2: it chased <laughs> away all my understanding of Italian. And I stopped after one trial. <laughs> Did you quitter? No. I'm just saying I've weighed my feces once and I know. Uh, you gotta do it more than once. Uh he also created the Ebbinghaus o- illusion. Have you ever heard of that? That's that thing right there. Is it the same size? Yeah. That is not the same size. It is. It It is not the same (laughs) size. (laughs) It's a very famous illusion where there are two same-sized circles. They're not the same size. And then the one on the left has these very large circles around it, and the one on the right has very small circles around it. And it gives the appearance that they're different sizes, but they are not. So Ebbinghaus is a
0: pioneer in experimental psychology, which is pretty cool. Absolutely. And in experimental psychology, still today, uh, self-experimentation is um, fairly commonly used um, because it's not nearly as dangerous as it is in, say, medicine. And sure. And for, for that reason, science today is basically
2: like you, you can't self-experiment. That's so 19th century. Well, and beyond the dangers of it, there's something called double blinds and placebos mm-hmm. that you know, if you know if you're self experimenting then there that's gonna affect the outcome of the experiment. Right. The, Almost one hundred percent of the time, the, I would the think. The
0: double blind is like a hallmark of scientific inquiry and you it's impossible with when you're experimenting on yourself. That's true. So uh, if you're looking for grant funding and you're saying, Well, I'm just gonna try this drug on myself and see what happens, you're not gonna get that funding. But probably won't get published either, right? Well, it depends. There's this guy named Seth Roberts who published a paper about his 12 years of self-experimentation. And he's a psychologist. Um, but the paper that he published was about his, the self-experimenting he did in his spare time. So if you're not an experimental psychologist, um, probably if you're into self-experimentation, you're either um, some sort of pro-scientist mm-hmm. doing it in your spare time right. or you're an amateur. There's a, a There's a, been a movement called uh, N equals 1 which is, uh, you know, and is scientific notation for the study sample size or population size. Isn't it called Quantified Self,
2: though? That's the movement?
0: Well, that's the um, that's the website. There's like a group oh, okay. where it's kind of like this hub of like, hey, I wanted to figure out why right. I had migraine. So I started tracking like
2: my food and- There um, were wired editors, I think. Who founded Quantified this. Self? Yeah.
0: Yeah. I did not know that. Well, yeah. Yeah. So there's a quantifiedself.com. Is basically this awesome place where you can go see how other people are carrying out their own self-experiments
2: and gets a little wacky. Yeah, there's this one lady that drinks her first urine of the day each day. That is wacky. <laughs> she records all that. Are you sure you saw that? I I read it. I didn't see her do that. Well, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you didn't click
0: on the YouTube link. No,
2: there's all sort. There was a big uh, I did not Forbes. See that one. Yeah, Forbes had a big article on uh, this movement, which nice. is some people call it navel gazing at its finest. Yeah. Other people think it's valid. Well, that's the point that Seth Roberts made.
0: He was saying, like, I don't need funding for this because I'm just doing it in my spare time. It costs, like, basically no money. Get off my back. I just pay attention. Yeah. But he also said that, um, he was motivate, he had the motivation of a person looking to solve a problem. Like, he wanted to control his weight or mood or uh, make himself a happier person or um, get better sleep. So, he just carried out all these self experiments and he could conduct more than one at at a time. Yeah. So, yeah, he was like, get off my back.
2: I I think it's kind of cool, though. Like, I I have lactose issues and I could see myself getting into. Eating uh, to tracking that and, and isolating right. exactly which foods. I mean, that's basically all it is. That's
0: it. It's kind of cool. And drinking your own urine. <laughs> I will draw the line there. So, um, we should probably say thanks to some of the, uh, sources that helped us with this podcast. Josh Clark. Oscillatory Thoughts blog. Um, Let's see. Tiffany Watt Smith wrote Henry Head in the Theater of Reverie. Scientific American had a cool article, self experimenter Step Up for Science. Alan nuringer had a paper from 1981 called Self-Experimentation, A Call for Change. Lawrence K. Altman literally wrote the book on this, quote, um, who Goes First, The Story of Self-Experimentation in Medicine. Who Goes First. Yeah, exactly. That's pretty funny. Um, A.E. Cohen wrote an article in the British Journal of Clinical Pharmacology about um, Sarah Turner's experiments, uh-huh. he and his good-time buddies. Um, Salvatore Curari. Did he write about Centorio Centorio? He wrote about George Stratton. Ah. Uh, the University of Indiana has a cool human intelligence department. Quantifiedself.com, if you want to get into self-experimentation and don't feel like suing us for mentioning it. It's interesting to
2: look at, at the very least. Yeah,
0: agreed. Uh, And then Seth Roberts, The Unreasonable Effectiveness of My Self-Experimentation is the Name of the Paper. So those are all the ones. And then pretty soon, there'll be a list, a a top ten list on the site. It's not published yet. It's practically done, I would assume. And, Chuck, uh, if you forgot the name of the uh, show that we're promoting on Science Channel, why don't we do a little ad for it?
3: If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. From the trenches, we share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people, and we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner.
3: Jean Eugene Fodor. Jean, was we'll
2: much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with.
3: So you write the books, Gene. and on the business. Well, I understand now. It's a wise man. Uh, is a wiser woman.
2: But be careful and choose your travel partner well because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down!
4: I'm not stupid, Gene.
1: Something is going on and its high time. You tell me the truth.
3: Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh!
1: Gene, run!
2: So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's true, yeah. Um,
0: Chuck, a couple more shout-outs. Our good, good friend Wyatt Snack. Yes. His uh, stand-up
2: special, uh, Wyatt Cenac Comedy Person, is out on DVD. Very funny stuff. <laughs> yes. And if you've only seen Wyatt on The Daily Show, he is uh, he's great on The Daily Show, but his stand-up is is hysterical and different than you would think it would be. It is. He's much more like lively and animated. And, yeah, he's awesome. Yeah, he's a good, good guy, stuff. too. Um,
0: and uh, we have a happiness audio book out. That's right. The Grammy-nominated, nominated... Happiness Audiobook. The <laughs> yeah. Super Stuff Guide to Happiness. That's right. Um, it's up on iTunes for three You're going to end up shelling out more if you're in Australia. We're sorry. Um, uh, let's see. What else? Oh, it's got all sorts of great sound design interviews. Yeah. Uh, it's just cool. we got uh, some ex- experts on the horn. Yep, yeah, My niece. Yes. Starts she, it out. She let it off. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's up on iTunes. Just search for Super Stuff Guide to Happiness. And that will also bring up... Um, the Superstuff Guide to the Economy, which is still evergreen and good. Are we going to do any more of those? I think we should. Just, I mean, it would feel like,
2: uh, just, we should. Okay, we we'll should. I would feel it. like a quitter if we just had two.
0: Yeah, we need at least three. I would like four at least.
2: Okay. Okay.
0: And then, uh, one more administrative detail. We have a cool little thing. If you text, um, SYSK to 80565, it texts you back a link. To listen to the podcast on your iPhone without going through iTunes if you're not in the mood. Is that what they did? Yeah. I didn't do that. It's cool. It it, uh, brings up our RSS feed, and you can just listen to it. Uh, I think it's QuickTime, so it'll work on your iPhone or your Droid or whatever.
2: That's our latest marketing uh, invention.
0: Yeah, it's pretty cool. So um, just text SYSK to 80565 if you ever are having a uh, Stuff You Should Know, Jones. That's right. That's right. Friedrich, so Turner's not around.
2: Yeah, and by the way, we're, we're working on, there's been some issues with the apps, I think, refreshing the podcast list lately, and we are working, our tech department is working on that, so keep your pants on, as they say. Yeah, so this
0: will be up eventually. You can look for um, 10, 10 scientists who were their own guinea pigs. Love it. In the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com, you can also type in human experimentation and five crazy government experiments, and they'll bring up those articles. Um, And I said, handy search bar, finally, somewhere in there, which means it's time for listener mail.
2: Uh, Josh, I'm going to call this, uh, well, first of all, quickly, if you're from Berkeley, California, and you went to UC Berkeley, we had a slight slip of the tongue. Seriously? We said UCLA Berkeley. We know it's UC Berkeley. We yeah. know UCLA is in Los Angeles. Yes. It was just a little slip of the tongue. That's it.
0: We're not dummies. No, we're not dummies. And also, that if, happens sometimes. if you uh, live in or have been to Nederland, Colorado, and are a fan of the Frozen Dead Guy days and are mad we didn't bring it up in our Cryonics episode, go listen to 10 Odd Town Festivals. That's right. It's in there. It's in there.
2: All right. So back to the listener mail. Uh, this is from Stephen H. And this was just cool information. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the show, guys. Love the depth and breadth of the presentations. I'm not sure how far I uh, am from this week. He's pretty far. But I just listened to the Black Death episode. Uh, I thought you might be interested to know, while the plague was a horrible affair with millions of deaths, and an interesting effect on our language today, many scholars of the history of the English language, myself included, hold that the plague in England is a major reason why we write in English today. You see, after the Normans, which were French Vikings took England at the Battle of Hastings in 1066. Anglo, Norman, French, and Latin became the two major languages of administration and literature. Because all the important rich folks were French, spoke Mm -hmm. French. Okay. Um, However, for reasons unknown, the plague seems to have hit the mid-range nobility harder than other groups, resulting in a desperate need for administrators. The only people left to fill the jobs were regular Joes who only spoke English. So the theory goes that because of the plague, the nobility was forced to learn English to communicate with their administrators, resulting in the reemergence of English as the language of law, administration, and literature. Mm-hmm. From Stephen H. Nice. Pretty, pretty neato. Yeah. I love supplemental information. That's Those are my favorite ones.
0: I do too. So thanks a lot, Stephen H. Um, and uh, since Chuck's such a big fan of supplemental information, um, if you have any supplemental information about experimentation specifically self-experimentation, we want to hear it. Yeah, if you've done this yourself, I'd like to hear about it. Yeah, but don't do it yourself
2: just to tell us about it. No, because we don't want anyone getting hurt.
0: That seems like in the gray area that I'm not comfortable
2: with. But if you've done, like, your own lactose study on yourself, something like that. Sure. Something harmless. Yeah, like you didn't inject lactose.
0: No. Um, you can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. Um, you can go on to Facebook.com slash know. That's our page. Um, or you can send us a plain old fashioned email to stuffpodcasts at com.
1: Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join How Stuff Works staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?